The people of God have always structured our corporate life together around feasting and fasting. That's been a thing for a very, very long time in the history of God's people. If you go back 3,000 years to the time of Moses, the people of God are given a, a routine or a calendar for the year that revolves around feasting and fasting. They've celebrated and worshipped with feasting and joy, and they have prayed and often repented with fasting. Those, those things have gone together for 3,000 years in our corporate history as God's people. And in a traditional church calendar, that still happens. So within a few hundred yards of where you're sitting right now, there will be churches where some form of this rhythm through people have been fasting through Advent and then they would have celebrated a 12-day feast called Christmas. You may have celebrated it too, but it may not have lasted 12 days. Um, but then it, they would go from Christmas, then back they'd have Epiphany and then they go back to, in a month's time, they'll go to Lent, which is a period of fasting. And then they'll go to Easter, which is a period of feasting. And that, that rhythm of feasting and fasting is very baked into the corporate life of a lot of the church. Now at Kings, we do things a bit differently. We, we don't follow the calendar in that way, although we do mark Advent and Christmas and obviously Easter and many others. But this year, we are actually doing a, a feasting, fasting two-step, if you like. We, we had Advent and then Christmas, and we're now in January going to be doing 21 days of prayer and fasting. And I hope that the evenings that you've been to, if you've managed to get to any, I hope you've found them as soul-stirring and empowering and just powerful times of encountering God as I have and as many have. But because fasting isn't something we very often do, and it's not something we do corporately anyway, it's more of something that you do when no one else can see, it's quite difficult to bake it in as a spiritual habit in a culture like ours. And it's also quite easy for people to misunderstand what it is and how it works and what it's for. So most of the spiritual practices that Jesus gave us are things that in some form we do corporately. So we might we pray on our own, but we also pray together as a church. We read a Bible on our own, but we also read the scriptures together we, corporately. And we're going to do that in a minute. And we might say the same about corporate worship and serving and giving. And they're all things that have an, an expression, at least, in the gathered life of the church. But fasting is not like that. And I spend quite a lot of time at church on a Sunday because I'm a pastor, I'm here a lot. But even so, if I, if I don't eat between whatever it is when I get here at 8 a.m. and leave at 2 p.m. and I don't eat in that six hours, no one thinks I'm fasting, neither do I. That, that's just a busy morning, right? It, it doesn't, it's not like corporately we go, I have abstained from food between nine in the morning and one when I go home. Of course, that's not fasting. So fasting is something that when people do it, they are generally not doing corporately, or at least they're not now in the kind of world we live in. And that means that prayer and fasting can be a difficult habit to pick up because we generally pick up habits by seeing other people do them and learning how they do it. And so if you grew up in a home where fasting was not practiced, and in my family it was, but it might not have been in yours, and many of us it wasn't. Our, our homes, we, we didn't see our parents do it. We didn't see people structure the even the meals around when people were fasting, that wasn't part of your upbringing, and for most of us probably it wasn't, then it's quite difficult to learn how we fast and how to actually make the best use of this spiritual habit. So if you've got your Bible, please grab it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. It'll be familiar words for many of us, but it's really powerful text of Jesus teaching the church. And this is actually the central section of what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're new to church, you may have heard of the Sermon on the Mount, even if you've never read it. It's Jesus's most famous sermon, and what Jesus does in the middle of this sermon, he's got other sections too, but in the middle bit that we're on here, I call it like, a, like the triangle-shaped bit of teaching in the middle, we have a section 
that Jesus gives on what happens when you give to the poor and what happens when you pray and what happens when you fast. And these sort of spiritual habits are at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we read it, what you'll see is that Jesus bookends these sections on how you give, pray, and fast. He bookends them between a con two contrasts between earthly and heavenly rewards. So right at the start of this passage in verse 1 and right at the end in verses 19 to 22 and 21, Jesus says, make sure you look to God for your reward rather than one another, rather than people. And then he applies that habit of the heart to giving, praying, and fasting. As I say, in this sort of triangle shape, the Sermon on the Mount goes up the mountain and then down the other side, and in the middle is the middle of the Lord's Prayer, on earth as in heaven. And so there's this, that right at the center, but he goes, don't, don't look to people for your reward, look to God. Here's how you give, here's how you pray, here's how you fast. Don't look to people, but look to God for your reward. And within that shape, actually, even the bit on prayer is triangle shapes. Our Father, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, on earth as in heaven. And then it's from you, 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 it goes us, us, us. Give us our bread, give us forgiveness, keep us from trials, and then the amen. And so that's the way the, the, the whole passage works. And we're going to see that in this particular bit, Jesus gives some really challenging, penetrating teaching on the discipline of fasting as well. And that's where we're going to focus most of our attention today. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand, pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen, then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, because they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Well, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head. Wash your face so that it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting but only to your father who's unseen. And then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of God. 
There's a lot in there. But one of the most obvious features of this passage, I think, is that Jesus actually never tells his disciples to give or pray or fast. He doesn't tell them to do it. He just assumes that they will. It's quite an interesting feature for us to ponder for a moment. Jesus never says, you must pray, you must give. He just goes, oh, well, you're obviously going to do that. So when you do, do it like this. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. That's where our expression blowing your own trumpet comes from. In verse 2, not, hey, here's why you should give to the poor. He said, well, you love God and you've read his word, so you're obviously going to give to the poor because who could be a Christian without doing that? Now, when you give to the poor, do it like this. And then verse 5, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, rambling on and using fancy words. Like, of course, you love God, so you're obviously going to pray because you want to fellowship with God. You want to bring your whole life towards him and come to him in expectation of encounter. But, so, of course, you're going to do that. But when you do it, don't do it bad-heartedly. Don't do it to try and get praise. Do it like this instead. Then he says the same about fasting, which is our focus today. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. So, again, not hey, here's why fasting's really good for you. Here's three reasons to fast, guys. That's not what he says. He says, well, obviously, you're, you love God. You're longing for his kingdom. You're obviously going to fast, clearly. Now, when you do, do it like this. Now, remember, Jesus is speaking to Jewish people in the first century. They had their, their problems. They had challenges in their culture. They had things that they were struggling with as well. But they had been formed by many centuries of practice and familiarity with the Old Testament, and a very biblical calendar, as I mentioned earlier, this sort of fast and feast. So that combination of inherited tradition, scriptural knowledge, and a calendar to bake it all in, meant that fasting in their culture would almost be a bit like brushing our teeth in ours, right? Brushing, the, brushing our teeth is not something people that did that much in the ancient world, but they did fast in this setting, in, the, in Jewish culture. We're the opposites. Right? Fasting is not that common in the modern world, but brushing, unless it's like a sort of dietary thing or maybe Ramadan or something for Muslims, but it's not something most of our friends and neighbours practice as a matter of course, but everyone brushes their teeth. It's just one of those things you do um, because otherwise you'd smell bad and your teeth would rot and so on. But it's one of those things that in our culture, a bit like teeth brushing, in their culture, they would see this as, it's just part of the routine. You don't even particularly need to, you know, say, you must brush, I would never do that as a pastor. Here's why you must brush your teeth. Just like, well, when you do, you know, it's one of those things that is almost a given. And in their culture, it's worth bearing in mind that people had dramatically less money, obviously, than we do today. Almost all of us would. And they also had less access to food wherever they were than we do. So our culture is a strange mix. We've got, got a lot more money than most cultures have, but also food is just everywhere. Like you can buy healthy, you know, accessible, affordable food almost wherever you go. And in our culture, unlike theirs, most people get sick from eating too much, not from eating too little. That's, that's, that's the cause of more health issues in our culture, is overeating rather than undereating. Whereas in their culture, meat was a rarity, sugary snacks are unheard of, and the rhythms of life make fasting relatively straightforward for them, in a way that it isn't for us. Our problem is plenty, not scarcity. Food is relatively cheap, it's abundant, it's everywhere, it's tempting, it's massive billboards. You've probably walked or gone on a bus past or driven past a billboard, at least one, probably many, advertising you things that aren't very good for you, but that's saying, hey, buy more, buy more of this, and then eat or drink it. And probably on your way here to church. And more importantly, our cultural norms today are shaped by consumerism. 
right? The, the way that people think about everything, not just food and drink, is we are constantly being urged to want more, try more, consume more, buy more, and then borrow more to pay for it all. Right? That's just how our whole culture is forming us all the time. And you know this because you live in London. So you see all around you just being said, hey, want that, buy it. If you don't have the money for it, don't worry, borrow it. But, but that's the way our culture's wired. That's what everything is screaming at us all the time, whether we realize it or not. And consequently, with all, because of all of those cultural factors, most people in London today are, un, most people, not all, most people in London today are unfamiliar with the experience of being really hungry and wanting to eat and not eating. That is a very alien experience for most people in this city. There are some who, through sheer lack of money, that is a real, very real challenge. I don't want to minimise that. But for the vast majority of us and the vast majority of people in our streets and people we interact with at the school gate, if people are hungry, they eat. That's just what happens in London today. And that means that although fasting is less common now than it was in Jesus's world, in the, the first, in the, it's all Jesus's world, in the first century Jewish world of this, this passage, fasting is less common now than it was then, but it's probably even more important now than it was then. Because fasting, however you do it, whether it means missing one meal or whether it means stopping eating for several days, which some of us may be doing at the moment, but wherever on the spectrum it is, Fasting is one of the best ways we have of breaking the power of consumerism in our lives and breaking the power of mammon, the sort of spiritual power behind wanting more, spending more, taking more. And fasting is just one of the tools God has given us to break the power of that. And because those, those gods are more prominent probably in our culture than they might have been in Jesus' day, fasting is, if anything, more important now than it was then. In their world, sometimes people wouldn't eat for a meal or two in a day because they couldn't afford to. In our culture, that's unlikely to be the case. And for most of us, we are actually at risk of being formed and discipled by a world that says, you have whatever you want, whenever you want it, as long as you can afford it. And if you can't afford it, just borrow it. And when we abstain from food, we make a powerful statement to ourselves and to the world and the flesh and the devil, actually. We say to the flesh, you are not in charge. Jesus is in charge, not my, not my fleshly desires. And this doesn't just apply to food, of course. It applies to sex. It applies to other worldly things we want, right? Fleshly desires. But it, we say to the flesh, you're not in charge. You don't, get, you don't run my life. We say to the world, I can wait. You are not God. You don't get to click your fingers and say, I will go after whatever you're telling me I should want. And we also say to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is a warfare component to the, the practice of fasting because we are, whether we, again, we might not be even meaning to do this, but if you think, if you fasted in the past, you may be aware of this dynamic going on in your own life. I am renouncing, I'm, speak, I'm saying a no to the power of the flesh, the world, and the devil in my life through this practice, and it is training me and forming me to be somebody for whom God's priorities move higher in my life than all earthly things. That's not an easy thing to do in a consumer culture like ours, but fasting is one of the keys, one of the powerful tools that God has given us and that Jesus exhorts us to use in this fight. Now, I should say at this point, there are a number of people in our church, a number of people in general, who cannot abstain from food for very long for various good reasons. It might be diabetes, it might be pregnancy, it might be anemia, it might, there might, and probably a whole bunch of things I'm not even aware of that might mean that for you it's just not safe. 
or for your your children or your spouse or whatever, that is not safe. And we will need, if that's true for you, we will need to find other things to abstain from to practice what Jesus says here. So I just want to make sure that that's clear. That I'm not, It's not like you can't be spiritual if you don't stop eating for a certain number of hours or days. But I also want to clarify, because <laughs> I also think this is important, that the normal meaning of the word fast in the Bible is to abstain from food. And that so there are lots of exceptions for good reasons, great. But as much as it can be very helpful, and I've done this, by the way, to turn off social media or TV or whatever it might be, that might be a very good idea for a whole season of time. And I've done that. I've fasted Lent on those kind of things before. But as much as that might be very helpful, hunger, physically wanting to eat and not, can fuel our hunger for God like nothing else can. That actually, put a bit more bluntly, if the only things you're fasting from are things that aren't food, and you can fast from food, give it a go. You probably should. Because it's something that will help you strengthen that sort of, there's an inner resilience actually, an inner renunciation or a no to the world, the flesh and the devil that probably doesn't only come from, doesn't come from turning off social media or television in the way it does when you turn off food for a season. But Jesus' main concern in this passage is actually not that his disciples will fast. As we've said, that's not the main thing he's saying. He actually assumes that they will fast. His main concern in this passage is that when they fast, they do so for heavenly rewards and not for earthly ones. Verse 16, when you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do because they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head. We might now say, wash your hair with shampoo. Like, put, wash your face. Make sure, you know, brush your teeth. Make sure you, you smell okay. Then no one's going, oh gosh, they must be fasting. Look how smelly they are or whatever it is, how disheveled they look. No, wash your face so that it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who's unseen. And your father who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. Human praise is incredibly tempting. Most of us know what it's like to have achieved something good, maybe religiously good even, and have the overwhelming desire to tell someone about it and feel like if I don't tell someone, this doesn't feel like I'm getting the benefit of it. Right? You, I've experienced this so many times. I'm, I'm quite a, a noisy person. I like talking. So I'm continually having to suppress the desire and often losing that battle to blurt out something impressive I've done. Now, sometimes I overcome the temptation and nobody ever finds out. So it is only my father who sees what's done in secret who rewards me for whatever that thing is. But sometimes I find I just find a way, in spite of myself, of just dropping it into conversation, just to watch someone's opinion of me go a little bit higher on the dial. Now that can be almost comic. I mean, I, to be honest, I catch myself doing it sometimes. I'm just like, what? And I laugh at, at my own foolishness. Like I did it the other day, having written this message, I was bringing down the Christmas decorations. I'd, Rachel had, had said I'd be really nice to get rid of them all today. She then went off and did something and I had a bit of time to myself and instead of spending it doing what I wanted, well, as well as spending some time doing what I wanted, I spent a lot of time. It took me an hour or so going around the house. doing. Anyway, it's a trivial thing. We do it all the time. But she got in the door and she comes in with Sam, my seven-year-old. They walk in and honestly, before they'd even got properly into the house, I was like, I took down all the Christmas decorations. And then I heard myself say, I was like, oh, you idiot. Why, why do you feel the need to fish for praise? But it's very, very tempting. And sometimes, as I say, it can be almost comic like that, a bit of a silly, like a thing I could joke about in a message. But 
Often it is a tragic reflection of my craving for human praise. Like it may or may, it may be funny or not, depending on what it is, but it often reflects something quite unsettling about my soul, which is just, it's an exercise in brand management. It's like, I'm the brand and I want you to think better of me, so I'm just gonna drop that in so that you know, and it might be very subtle and only I might know that I'd done it. But I've just found little ways of boasting about spiritual habits or things that might make you think more of me than you do now. Massaging upwards people's perceptions of me. It's like, ugh. And when you catch yourself doing it, you know. You know, what did I say that for? Well, Jesus knows us so well. He knows that we're like that. He knows our frailty and our flesh. So he aims his teaching on fasting straight at that temptation to fast in order to gain human praise. Verse 16. Don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Jesus is like, this is very easy. You, can, you all know people, he says, you, who they make it as obvious as they can that they are doing something spiritual. Then he says, verse 17, goes further. He says, it's not just I'm telling you don't disfigure your faces. I'm saying actually take steps to disguise the fact that you're fasting, which is a remarkable comment. When you fast, put oil in your head, wash your face, so that it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting. So Jesus isn't just telling us, don't show off about it. He's telling us, actively disguise it, because he knows that many of us will find it easier to abstain from eating than to abstain from human praise. We'll find, yeah, I, I, can, I, can, go, I can miss a couple of meals, but missing a couple of opportunities to spiritually show off, I'm going to find that much harder. That's what Jesus knows about us. And he aims his teaching directly at that point. My friend John Stark calls this the fast within a fast. It's a phrase that really helped me. Uh, John is a pastor in uh, Manhattan in New York City. And he wrote an outstanding book, which I really commend to you actually, on just on spiritual habits, but it's just one, one of the, probably the best Christian book I read last year, in my view. Uh, it's a book called The Secret Place of Thunder. And the title is taken from Psalm 81 and verse 7, where God says, I answered you in the secret place of thunder. And John takes that theme and even his subtitle I found profound. His subtitle was, Trading Our Need to Be Noticed for a Hidden Life with Christ. It's a very powerful book. And you may recognize that dynamic in your life. I have a need to be noticed, but I know that it is pulling against my hidden life in Christ. Anyway, in that book, John talks about a fast within a fast that Jesus calls us to in this passage. There's the physical abstention from tasty food, and then within that, there is the spiritual abstention from tasty praise. So you say no to food, but then within that, you also say no to the praise that comes with saying no to food. Some of us may be very happy to give financially, so long as we're given credit for it. We may be happy to pray so long as our prayers are acknowledged and thanked for. We're happy to fast so long as people know how devoted and sacrificial we are. And Jesus says, hey guys, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. Don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Don't be like the hypocrites who want everyone to know how godly they are. They've already got their reward. Instead, you should not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. You should go into your room and shut the door. You should anoint your head and wash your face. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. 
That doesn't mean that you can never do any of those things in public. We hold public prayer meetings. The early church did a lot of that. Jesus prayed in front of people. So he's not making a law. He's not saying, you must never pray out loud in front of someone else. That would make my job very difficult. So that's, and that isn't the claim he's making, and it's not the claim I'm making. But Jesus is saying, you must make sure that your heart is continually abstaining from the praise that you could fish for in order that your reward actually is being found from God in heavenly terms and not in worldly praise. So brothers and sisters, there are many reasons to pray and fast. And that's what many of us are doing through this course of this month. It can deepen our hunger for God. Every time a hunger pang comes, you're like, yes, I must pray. I, yes, I want God more than this thing. It can bring breakthrough in prayer. I've witnessed that in my own life. For whatever reason, sometimes a season of fasting is accompanied by breakthrough in the thing I've been praying for. It trains us how to say no to the world, the flesh and the devil. It can break our addiction to certain foods, but even better, it can break our addiction to human praise. So let me ask you this. Is there any area of your life that would not be better if you cared less about what other people think and more about what God thinks? Is there anything in your life where you'd say, oh yeah, I think my, my life would be better. I suspect every area of your life, every corner of you would be more fruitful if you were to care a bit less about what other people thought and a bit more about your father who sees what's done in secret. Alongside that, let me ask one more question. Is there any area of your life that would not improve if you had a greater degree of resistance to what your flesh wanted? Is there anything you could say, yeah, actually that wouldn't, that wouldn't make any odds. I suspect that for all of us, Every corner of our lives would get richer and deeper and more, ultimately more joyful in God were we to have a great, slightly greater degree of resistance to the desires of the flesh. And if the answer to either of those questions is yes, if, if, you, if you can look at, look at your life and say, actually, or maybe, sorry, I've got that wrong. The answer to either of the questions is no. There is no area of my life that wouldn't get better if I did this. If that's true, then here's an idea for January 2024. Fast, so start small, maybe just miss a meal, and build up over time. Don't tell anyone, disguise it even, and your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. That's the challenge, that's the invitation of Jesus with the spiritual habits and the invitation when it comes to fasting. The lovely thing about this is you will never know if I'm fasting right now. I will never know if you are. So we're not doing this to perform. We're ultimately doing it because we love the Lord God and we want him to expand in our hearts and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this, for your son and his incredibly insightful, challenging, straight to the heart teaching on these themes. And Lord, we pray as the people of God, we, we do, we're at different places, Lord, we've got different levels of Christian history and spiritual disciplines even right now, but we, we are here by and large because we want more of God in our lives. And so we pray, would you expand our capacity for you and our capacity for joy? Would you... Would you wash away guilt if that's what's percolating? If the enemy's managed to get in there and go, oh, no, no, this is, he's just accusing you. Lord, would you take that away? But would you also bring the invitation to zealous discipleship and following God with our whole hearts? And would you help sustain us as we pursue the life of God together? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.